Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey y'all, Dr. Finlayson Fife here. I often get requests to provide more resources for teens, young single adults, and mid-singles. And while I do hope to create new content specifically for these demographics in the future, I wanted to also just take a minute and let you know that the principles and ideas taught in my existing online courses are applicable to all adults, regardless of their relationship status. My podcasts and course materials focus on helping individuals define their sense of self, forge personal integrity, and become whole and integrated human beings. So these ideas will benefit those who have never married just as much as those who are partnered, or those who were married but find themselves single again. So don't let your relationship status keep you from enrolling in a course, participating in my Facebook groups, or enjoying my free or subscription-based podcast. I also wanted to let you know that on Friday, January 27th at 12 noon Mountain Time, I'll be hosting a live question and answer session specifically for singles. And during this hour-long conversation, I'll take questions about dating relationships, fostering healthy sexuality while single, dating after divorce, chastity, and more. Join this conversation. Click the link in the show notes to join our Facebook group. Hope to see you there. All right, welcome to another episode of Barbie Does Dating. Today we have a guest with us. We have Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. She has a very popular podcast. She is an LDS marriage and sexuality coach. Uh, she has a PhD in counseling. She teaches an online course and hosts Room for Two, which is her sex and intimacy podcast, which is very, very interesting that she does. So we are so pleased that Nick was able to have her here today as a guest. So let's hear some wonderful things from Dr. Fife. So we have Jennifer Finlayson Fife on. And uh, for those of you that don't know her, um, we encourage you to check out her website. And that's uh, Finlayson Fife. Is it Finlayson-Fife? I can't remember. Yes, Finlayson-Fife.com. And we'll certainly put a link to that in our show notes. But um, we want to kind of just jump right in and get as much time with you as we can. For those of you that don't follow uh, Jennifer's work, um, there's a a word that she uses a lot, and I think it's important to our conversation today, and that is the word differentiation. Um, And so what is differentiation and, and how might it be relevant in dating or single relationships? So differentiation um, is the easiest way to talk about it is psychological maturation. And what it means is that when we are young, our sense of self is very entangled with other people's minds. So babies, for example, toddlers, children can't have a sense of self except to look to others to know something about who they are. So we start out with a reflected sense of self, which was a Murray Bowen concept. You look to others to tell you who you are. Mom says, I'm good at math. I must be good at math. And so that dependency is necessary because your physical autonomy outpaces your psychological autonomy. But If you're going to grow into full psychological adulthood, you become progressively less dependent on other people's approval or reflection of you to manage your sense of self. The reality, though, is most adults don't 
move out of that dependency. So they tend to marry somebody that they hope they've locked in to reflect back to them all the validation and approval they have always wanted or they hope their parents would give. People are often hoping they're locking in a validation system. Yeah. And so what differentiation is not, just to be clear, because a lot of people misunderstand it, it's not that you don't need anybody or I don't care what you think, I'm doing my own thing. It's not the John Wayne approach to life. It's not a rebellious approach. In fact, the more you become at ease in your own skin and your own mind, the closer you are, uh, the more you're able to be close to other important people. Yeah. And I think that there's a sense of self that you can take into a relationship that helps helps that marriage have more depth and more meaning because you're you're creating something new right. rather than just getting someone to to validate, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that was kind of the, yes. the term that was used. So. Now, that's an important concept, I think, that um, I know that I wasn't taught when I was a young adult and trying to get married and, sure. and that whole thing. And even for years as a married person, I I, I wasn't living that way. Um, right. Part of why I want to bring that up is because there's this concept that a lot of people have when they're dating of Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, and, yep. and, or that there's the idea of the one. And, and how much value is there in looking at things through that lens, especially in light of this differentiation? Well, the, I think it's definitely not valuable to say the one. There isn't one. I mean, I certainly lived in that idea as a child, like, should I go to Rick's or should I go to BYU? Because what if the one is at Rick's and I go to BYU? So that kind of idea. Um, but there isn't a one which is different than saying you could be partnered with anyone and be happy. So I think there's research. I remember John Gottman talking about this research. I don't know if it was research he did or not, but that there are certain people that you will notice more, be attracted to more, light up more when you meet them and others that you won't. They may have a different body phenotype. They might be different style. So you, you're you going to have some people that you feel more draw to, more desire to get close to than others. Um, and probably the happiness of a marriage has to do a little bit with finding that person that lights you up. But it's also highly related happiness in marriage to how differentiated you are, how mature you are. Importantly, how you handle invalidation that's inherent to any honest marriage. Now, that's a, that's a tough one right there, the last part, where you talked about there being invalidation in marriage. And there's often invalidation in dating relationships. And yes. sometimes those are categorized as red flags. What's the difference between a, a healthy bit of invalidation in a relationship versus a, a red flag? Yeah. Well, I would say that the healthy invalidation is a natural emergence of living honestly and kindly in a marriage. I mean, I think love and truth always have to go together. And so if you're in an honest, loving marriage or honest, loving dating relationship, you're going to inherently recognize that you have different values, different orientations to things, different choices that you'd make. Because, you know, we want to belong to other people, but we also want to be able to claim our own life and not have to give up too much of who we are to be close to another person. And so what marriage 
does is if you're living honestly, you're going to say, I value decorating the house. And the other's going to say, I value not decorating it. I don't want to <laughs> spend all that money there. Okay. Those are two legit desires. <laughs> and so if you, and especially because we tend to choose people that are different than us, right? That's what part of what makes them compelling is the mystery of this person that hates decorating. <laughs> so, you know, what? that's part of what draws you to the other person. But then how do you negotiate a life together where you can both belong to each other and belong to your own values? And that's the inherent struggle of any honest relationship. And how lovingly people handle that has everything to do with how happy they are. And by loving, I don't mean you just do what your partner wants. I have a podcast entitled this because I think it's the core idea, which is you make room for two people in that marriage. How do we value your frugality and my desire for a nice space, right? How do we do this in a way that we can care about each other's values and what each other desires? And that's not always easy, right? You can't have half a baby, okay? You, like, you know, there's some things you can't agree to disagree or split it down the middle. And so this often means like, what are we going to be about as a couple? What are we going to value? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that what that ends up being sometimes is it feels um, competitive in some ways. Mm-hmm. And that competition can, oh, 100%. can yes. be kind of scary um, to the point that I know that that Steve has talked about this openly on our podcast, so um, I'm not revealing anything too personal, but mm-hmm. there's this fear of commitment that a lot of people have because of the fear yes, of maybe sure. that competition. But the fear of commitment can manifest in different ways. Um, what are some of the different ways that fear of commitment manifests in, in maybe dating relationships? Well, you're talking to a commitment phobe who married another <laughs> commitment phobe. Okay. <laughs> so uh, up, that is John... John got married right after he turned 38. I got married right before I turned 30 to each other. Um, So we were eight years apart, but we were certainly a lot later than our normal cohort of peers. Um, But I think some of the ways that it can be manifest is through a perfectionism. So, So what I think commitment phobia generally is, is I'm afraid to be close to someone in part because I'm afraid I will lose my life, lose my identity or will be vulnerable to their rejection, right? So when you have that core fear, the way you can handle it is through a kind of perfectionism. Like, you're not all the things I want. You disappoint me here and here. So it's kind of a handy tool, and a lot of people do it in marriage, which is you kind of pull yourself above the other person, get the higher ground in the dynamic. You're the one who wants less, And it kind of allows you the security of having somebody want you or revolve around you without having to actually step into the marriage or into the partnership and be more exposed to let them really matter to you. So it can be in that kind of perfectionism or lower desire while keeping the partnership going, right? You know, I I did this when I was dating, John, where I was the lower desire one for it to work out. So I said, you know, you really should date other people. I feel guilty keeping you here, which I did feel guilty about it. But 
that's different than I actually wanted him to date other people. <laughs> and so I was actually on a date with someone else, ran into him at a, an event where he was with another person. Awkward. And I freaked out internally because while I wasn't ready to step in with two feet, I had no interest in him going elsewhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. nice. And so a lot of times people do that in marriage or in dating, which is keep the validation coming, but I don't want the exposure and the commitment of stepping in. It can also be expressed as just not dating not waiting, that is just not dating or like not, um, how do I say it, not trying to get out there and to know people. So you're not taking the risk of desiring someone. You're not taking the risk of stepping in. Sometimes it's people waiting until they feel good enough to find the person that they would want to be with. Yeah. They're, they don't feel ready. So those are some versions. Did that, uh, sort of happenstance of you running into John and him running into you and seeing each other with other people, is that sort of one of of the catalysts that went, oh, we don't want this, we want us? What I would say is I was surprised by how dysregulated I was. It helped expose to me that I had no interest in John going elsewhere. I just was terrified of stepping in. So it didn't, it's not, wasn't an immediate shift for me, but it helped me start waking up to the fact that this was not about not desiring John, actually. I, and I don't mean to say that the concerns I had weren't legit and weren't worth me thinking through, but it was that I didn't, I just kept wanting to keep him in a position, how to say, I didn't want the exposure of stepping in. So it took me a little bit of time still. But that certainly was a pressure point on me. It was also, to be honest, that I did not like who I was. I I didn't like what I was doing to handle my anxiety about commitment. And I couldn't step fully in or fully step out. And being in that straddling position over a period of a couple of years, because we dated for a bit, I knew that I was being weak. And that was pushing me to fully step in or out. Um, so there were a few other experiences that made a big difference for me to be able to step in fully. But what was very interesting for me is that when I did step in fully, because he had really been the one who'd been clear the whole time, when I did step in fully, it was great for a few weeks. But then I started to feel ridiculously insecure. <laughs> and I couldn't get over that I did because that's not how I'd felt. So now that I was in, it exposed to me how fearful I was of my own lovability, of my own ability to trust another person, to be true to their word. You know, it was it was very exposing of my, I wanted to be chosen, but I wasn't sure I wanted John to have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because he might I, choose I wrongly. To that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I guess I, I'm, I'm, trying to wrap my head around this this idea of, of how one maybe adopts some of those principles of differentiation to overcome this fear of commitment or some of the reasons that people maybe check themselves out of a relationship that otherwise is probably a good relationship for them to be in. Mm-hmm. So how would how would one go about maybe applying some of those principles in a situation well, like that? Part of part of what you know, so again, John and I dated by the time from first date to marriage was three years. Um, a year of that was pretty happy. <laughs> the other two years, <laughs> me, me, and this like uh, you know, trying to sort it out. Um, 
But the legitimate part of that is that differentiation is inherently an expression of self-authoring or self-definition. And so part of marrying someone or choosing a career path or choosing a path, right? The great thing about being 20, in a sense, is the whole world is open to you. You've got all kinds of different paths you could walk down. And so there's a tremendous amount of reason to hope. There's also a ton of anxiety because all these questions lay before you but the but the scary thing about taking a path is that you close off other paths and so that is also essential to forging a life is the willingness to say yes to some things and inherently no to other things so part of what's a legit part of differentiation and ambivalence in a partnership is you're trying to sort out who am I and is this the partner I desire? Is this the partnership I desire? Is this what I want to have define my life? This person's strengths and limitations, my strengths and limitations with them. So there's that question that if you're awake and, and paying attention, takes some honest thinking. But I think what was also true to me or revealing itself to me, and I thankfully had a really good therapist during the time, Uh, that I contacted about a year into the misery because I was like, I need help figuring out why I can't move forward or backwards is that I, I needed help seeing that I had a lot of anxieties about commitment. Part was growing up in the church, learning the idea that good women fold into a man's life. Now we're more, I think a little better about the language now, but when I was growing up, that was unequivocal. That was the ideal. And I just, knew that would go badly for me. I didn't want to fold into a man's life. I I wanted to love a man, be married and have a family, but I didn't want to disappear. And so I had to work through my own ability to hold on to myself and be partnered, like to hold on to my own desires and who I am. I had to also figure out that I handled my anxiety by kind of leaning out that I was actually quite insecure. I had to see that in myself. And so when I was waking up to some of these things, it was opening up my ability to self-define more deeply and to see that John could fully handle it. He could handle my strength. He could handle me being my honest self, that he wasn't going to ask me to be less. I knew it was true, actually. And then the question was, could I fully love this person, take another person into my life and care for their values as well as my own, right? So it it was, how to say it, it was a deeply self-defining process. And that's what, you know, ultimately when John and I got married, which I think because we were later in life is more unique, is that we both were truly choosing each other. It wasn't that one chose and the other got chosen, which a lot of people do in their early 20s, that there was really this sense that we could choose otherwise, and yet this is the life we were choosing. But it was a process of knowing ourselves and making a choice about what we desired. And I I think there's a sense, too, when we talk about these issues of of prerequisites, right? Do we have to be differentiated before this or that happens. It'll never happen. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What I mean is marriage is a great driver of differentiation. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. The the courtship itself was driving issues to into relief for me, for me to actually take a look at that I had no idea were even there. So 
I don't mean just rush into marriage necessarily, but the idea that you have to be developed, then get married. So it's a little bit of a catch-22. In some ways, the more developed you are as a person, right, the, the, the more healthy the decision is that you'll make. On the other hand, a big driver of development is being in relationships and self-awareness within those relationships, seeing who you are. There's no, you know, I almost won't do individual coaching because it's very hard to see who a person actually is if you don't see them in an intimate relationship, Mm -hmm. if you don't see them in a significant relationship, I should say. So when someone is with a person that really matters to them, how they handle themselves exposes a lot about their development. And so marriage reveals it, marriage pressures it. And I mean, any committed, significant relationship pressures it parent-child relationship pressures it, an important friendship will pressure it because it's when someone matters to you, then how do you negotiate your own autonomy and also your interdependency on this person? Yeah. And that growth piece is, is part of what I'm, I wanted to kind of go on to next. And that's, you know, if I'm a person in my 30s, 40s or whatever, unmarried, how do I go about the process of self-analyzing myself and and, in a way that allows me to make adjustments that have a positive impact rather than just kind of falling into this kind of pit of self-pity and despair kind of idea. How does one go about that process? Sure. So I would say that, first of all, a way that we get, we stay in our dependency, our psychological dependency is to do one of two things, either fall into a pit of despair, I suck, you know, I'm terrible because I'm not perfect or going into, I'm not the problem. I'm great. You're the problem. Okay. Those are two ways of staying in a reactive position in your relationship to yourself and others. So while I can understand the temptation in both directions, I know both places that it keeps you from the honest exposure of growth So it takes some courage to get negative feedback in an important relationship. You know, you're to this, you hurt, it hurts when you do that, you know, and not go in either direction and deal with what's true, what you know is true that you want to get away from in what the other person's saying, either going into, yep, I do, I suck in that way and I suck in every possible way. (laughs) It's a way of getting away from the information. Yeah just as going into superior rejection of the idea. But if you're like, look, this person I care about is saying this hurts. I don't want to hurt this person. Okay. Um, But I don't want to just fold into their critique either, not just do whatever they say. So I've got to take this up with my honest self, with my higher self, with the self that I desire to be. Right. Importantly, going back to my story, it's like when I was in crisis with myself, I remember saying to my roommate, I don't like who I am. I don't like who I am being in this relationship. And that's when I knew I needed some help. Like I needed a wise other person to talk to this, talk talk through this. So I found a counselor and she was just very helpful in helping me sort my mind out so I could make choices that were coming from my stronger self. Yeah. Oh, I have questions, but at the end, it's a whole change of oh. subject. Nick keeps looking at me asking if I have more things to say, I'm and I'm just, like, I'm just taking notes. This is great. It's her show. <laughs> I, I feel bad. I want Nick to take the lead on this. He's much more professional I, than I am. I maybe have a question, <laughs> yeah. but I, I don't want to derail too far either. But, oh, derail, Steve. But it's like the the concept where we're t- earlier you were saying, like, 
use the example of the decorator versus the non-decorator. Yeah. And how that sort of mystery of the each other trying to figure each other out is somewhat some of the glue a little bit, some of the fun yes. stuff of that relationship. That's um, right. As a commitment phobe, uh, I do find myself having like, I hear a lot of people talk about marriage and it sounds like a lot of work. And yeah. oftentimes people go, it's it's hard. Marriage is hard. It's tough. I think that that might be because life is difficult. Like you just said when yes. you were talking to your uh, roommates and whatnot that you were like, I don't like who I am. You were having a, a <laughs> tough time in your life. I mm -hmm. guess as a commitment phobe, sometimes I want to hear people who are in a married relationship go, but ultimately it's easier. Like ultimately being mm -hmm. married is, oh my gosh. has been better than being single. Or I mean, me, I would say 1000%. I mean, I don't question, I think that I would have lived a good life even if I hadn't chosen to get married. I was in a yeah. career that I cared about. I know I would have been a good aunt. I would have created a good life. I trust that. And I even knew that before I got married. I knew it was a decision to partner. But I can't imagine personally, like because it's been a good marriage, because we've made it a good marriage, because we've both been people willing to look honestly at ourselves and not be defensive and harsh and cruel um, and stay honest nonetheless. Well, I can't imagine. Life is hard. Life has a lot of loss in it. There's a tremendous amount of vulnerability being a human on this planet. And it's such a gift to have an intimate friend, someone who has walked that path with me, who we share children with, we share a life with, we share a history. I mean, that's such an amazing gift that it, I imagine John may die ahead of me because he's eight years older, but I, I feel like like he in some ways holds so it's kind of paradoxical because while I don't think we're highly dependent on each other to manage our sense of self, the more deeply you invest in another person, the more they carry so much of who you are. And so it's, um, I guess I have zero question whether or not it's worth it. So now I'm not saying every marriage and every person would feel that way. Certainly there are people that have chosen marriages that they're questioning that they made a choice that they can live with. So marriage isn't equal across realities. I've said to my children, the number one thing that you want to look for, you know, ideally you look for someone who has good family relational patterns because then they've got it in. That's what's been modeled for them. But the most important thing is you you choose you first of all be someone who's willing to look honestly at themselves when they get feedback, who's willing to not just say oh mea culpa I'm so sorry yep, not just acknowledge it but do something to address that limitation. And you want to partner with someone who will do the same. When you have to fight your partner down to get them to accept anything, okay, well it's a tough life. You know if you have somebody that every time you say what's what making you unhappy, they twist it into another meaning and basically say, how dare you? That's a tough life. You don't have a friend. You have, you have a, an antagonist. Yeah. And who wants to open up to that? Who wants to have passionate sex with that person? So it's like, you know, it's so much about who you are and, and what you create. 
one more idea. I sometimes talk too much. <laughs> no, go ahead. no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, you know, what you're doing has so much effect on the relationship. So, you know, when I was in this ambivalent anxiety, I was, when I was dating John, I was always polluting the relationship with the, my, with my doubt. So the relationship was always in this space of insecurity. And then I would look at the effects of that and say, see, I don't think this is the right relationship for me because I would not step in fully. And so, you know, I, John was always sort of off balance with me because I was never fully in. What was shocking to me is that when I stepped in with two feet, like, first of all, I saw him differently. Like, I felt so fortunate to have him when months earlier I'd been in this place of critique that I suddenly realized this human being loves me. I am so fortunate. I'm so fortunate to have this good person. But also, as I stopped polluting the relationship, it just became so much more than I thought was possible. Like I couldn't, I remember my therapist saying to me, you can't know what's possible in this relationship from the position you're in. You're leaning out, you're in a place of perfectionistic critique, and you can't know what's possible from there. Like this, you know all that you can know from this position. If you're going to know if this is possible, you have to step in and face your insecurities. And so when I did, you know, it changed everything. I'm laughing because it's like I've heard this so much. <laughs> <laughs> Like as Nick and I both and, just stare at Steve, and I want to be—I want to <laughs> ask a lot of questions. So I, I'm a Sunday school teacher, and we had this example the other day where uh, somebody brought up buffalo. They said buffalo run towards the storm rather than away from it because mm -hmm. they learned if they run away from it, the storm ends up following them, and it ends up being a longer time in the storm. Mm, yeah. And I, I hear that and I go, that's that's really cool. Um, for buffalo. Why didn't the buffalo... <laughs> yeah, why does the buffalo find a cave or something? <laughs> why is the buffalo always got to run into the storm? Yeah, yeah. And But you mentioned like how much better it is when you jumped in, when you stepped in yes. with both feet. You also said, you said there was like a month or two of that bliss, of that this is going great, and then maybe another storm hit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so... How do you step in with both feet and manage that storm? I mean, mm -hmm. well, first of all, I don't think you can live a good life if you're not a storm chaser. Um, that is, if you don't go towards the difficulties, I don't mean you're going and making up trouble, okay? But if you're not going towards your limitations, you will always be running from them. And that's an extremely weak position. First of all, it makes you running scared all the time. You don't develop the muscles you need to handle life. Meaning to live a good life is not the absence of anxiety. There's always uncertainty in life. There's always things you can't control. You can love and let someone matter deeply to you and lose them. I mean, there's just no guarantees. What you want is to build the psychological muscle to handle that fact. And the way you do it is by not letting your fears run you around. You walk towards where you're struggling. You walk to the dark places. And that's what allows you to handle your fears, to handle the dark places. So, yeah, everything changed when I stepped towards it. It also helped me build muscles. You know, I remember making the decision to step in two feet. I wasn't going to go anywhere. And then John and I were having a conversation, and he brought up a way of thinking about something that I thought was 
dumb. Okay. Now <laughs> I'm not proud of myself right now, but that, that is true. That's like where my mind went yeah. rather than, okay, he thinks differently about it. Like big deal. This is not like, this is just an idea. We're just discussing a philosophical idea, but I handled it by going into my walled off critique. I like stepped away psychologically. I'm in a stance of judgment while we're in the conversation. And, you know, he's saying his idea while I'm confronting myself, like, knock it off like this is always where I escape to like I'm either in this or I'm not step back in and let him have a different idea like you idiot <laughs> now I'm talking to myself so so I you know step back towards it but it's like pushing myself to go back to the discomfort rather than escaping into the pattern that gives me momentary relief but keeps me weak so I was pulling myself back in and what I found out is like the more I would like stay there calm down Stop judging, even if it was in a quiet kind of judgment. Well, I, John was more exposed then, more present, more engaged in the conversation. He was actually so much wiser than I realized. Like he had so much to say. <laughs> but because I was always in this position of critique, it like wasn't available to us. So that, you know, that's just one version of it. It was also stepping in. It's, it wasn't that a really another storm hit in the old. I mean, yes, marriage life is full of storms on some level. It's that as I stepped in, it freed John up to actually have more of a choice. He wasn't just in a kind of anxious pursuit. He was more like, okay, I need a little time with you stepped in to really think through it and, and make sure this is really what's right for me. It's fully legitimate. It's just that now that I had stepped in, I was felt really afraid of letting him really take his time to sort out his own desires. So I just wanted to be the one in control of them. So that that's what that part was. But yeah. Yeah. You like yeah. them, Steve? <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's funny because it's just like it it affirms some of the things that you realize that it's like, dude, you have to either step into the arena or be a spectator your whole life. Yeah. And right. uh, it's like, obviously, for I think most people, they go, I want to step into the arena. Mm -hmm. I think for all people, eventually, you want to be the one doing right. the thing. I think the fantasy that we often have is that, oh, it's going to feel easier later. You know, like, oh, th that's not going to be so, you know, eventually I'm going to step in two mm -hmm. feet, right? And it's just your mind's way of pushing off the anxiety, which makes it worse, which means you now have more time for atrophy, less, <laughs> less ability to learn the, the thing that you want. And so it means just going into it. And, you know, Dr. Schnarr, someone that I trained with, used to say, you don't get a choice of whether or not you're anxious in life. You get the choice of whether or not you're in a productive anxiety or unproductive anxiety. That's what it is. Being a spectator is usually about unproductive anxiety. Oh, my gosh, I'm missing out. I'm missing out. But I'm terrified to step in. Productive anxiety usually means taking the anxiety up front. You walk right into the difficulty and it hurts. But then you get stabilized and you sort out how to do it and then your overall anxiety goes down when you're in unproductive anxiety your overall anxiety gets diffused and goes up because you start grieving all the life you're losing because you keep avoiding well and and this concept of the differentiation it sounds like when we were talking about how important it is to be independent to be your own person Perhaps having that helps you to have a better, healthy marriage because you are mm -hmm. being your own person. Is it that mm -hmm. you are being 
independent and brave or is it because a person who's independent and brave has the skill set to more likely step in? Yeah, I think it's that. Yeah. So bravery is something you can learn, right? Anxiety tolerance is something you can learn. People with low anxiety tolerance tend to get more and more anxiety as a result. You know, I think as you step in, you develop a self, you develop more muscles to handle uncertainty, and you develop more ability to trust yourself in a marriage. That's the thing. So you both are learning it by doing it, but you also start trusting yourself more. I mean, that's that's really what it came down for, to for me is I was so afraid if I got married, I was going to lose myself. I was going to just be vulnerable to another person. And what I got clear about was that I trusted myself to make decisions that were wise and good and right relative to the relationship, including if it meant leaving it, if if it became wrong to stay. So it wasn't that I anticipated that it would become wrong. It's that I trusted myself to lead a good life, even though I was, through a commitment, not going to be in full control of all the variables. And that self-trust is extremely important in partnering. Yeah. He's smiling. Yeah, that's big. <laughs> that's big. <laughs> well, well I, I, yeah, and I wanted to no, go ahead. run into your questions, too. No, I was going to start reciting lyrics from 8 Mile because it, <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like it would be funny, but... <laughs> Okay, I'm going to, can I ask my question now? Absolutely. Because I know sure. we only have her for a little bit longer. Okay, so I'm totally yeah. changing the subject. So okay. <laughs> one of the things that we run into a lot, like we're both, go to, Steve and I both go to mid-singles wards. We've never been married. But one of the things that I have, like I notice a lot is either the people in the dating scene are divorced or mm -hmm. the vast majority of people in the dating scene that haven't been married were sexually active at some point. And so entering mm -hmm. a stage of dating and celibacy is a very different mindset, especially yeah. people that were divorced. And so do you yeah. have any advice for that? Because we try to set boundaries, but, you know, it's hard because you have, yes, the spiritual side of it. But then you also have some people set the boundaries so far that it's like, I cannot do any kind of physical touch in any way. I'm not going to hold your hand because it's going to lead to something that like it's going to yeah. lead to more. I can't control myself or we don't want to get it there. So what advice do you have for people of going into dating on the celibate side, but not being a weirdo? Like, how can we? Like <laughs> there you go. Technical term. Technical weirdo. term. We're all a bunch of weirdos, but. It's something I don't have good advice. For okay, this, honestly, I really don't because I, I it's very hard to comprehend putting the genie back in the bottle. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's one thing if you've never ever been sexual to be dating and as a celibate, it's a much much harder challenge to be a full adult who's known sexual intimacy and be in a relationship. Mm -hmm. I the, I guess my advice would be to lead with your commitment and your decision, not your fear. Because what I think mm. sometimes the weirdo part is not that you might not make the commitment and choice to not be sexual before marriage in your adult courting relationship. It's not the decision per se. It's the fear, the terror, the kind of anxiety that, you know, um, any misstep makes me us terrible that is the weirdo part. It's mm -hmm. like there's so much anxiety that it's hard to kind of settle down and figure out how you're going to handle the fact that you're a sexual being, an adult, and that you don't want to have sex before marriage. 
you can figure out a way to do that, but you want it to come if you're not going to feel off kilter the whole time, that it's not coming out of a terror of breaking the rules. It's coming out of an integrity-based decision that you feel good about, and you're going to figure out how you're going to handle that as an individual or as a couple to stay true to that value, right? So yeah. I think when we, we, we make ourselves unnecessarily immature, when we push ourselves into an obedience frame, especially as adults, it's an earlier frame of thinking. You want an integrity frame and an agency frame as an adult that's adult level moral reasoning. And so you sometimes out of our desire to be good, we kind of keep ourselves psychologically as children. And that is not helpful in creating adult intimate partnerships. That is incredibly helpful, actually. Like good. really just approaching it in such a different way. Because I really do. I think so many of us do approach it from the fear side of, mm-hmm. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to do these things where... In truth, like we are, we are all sexual beings. And, you know, I was talking yeah. to my sister and her husband, they've been married for 28 years and like their kids are getting old enough to, to get married. And they were talking about one of their kids making out with their boyfriend. And it's like, oh, we kissed for like three hours. And her husband was like, do you remember when we used to kiss for like five <laughs> hours? <laughs> when what? that was even a possibility. Yeah. And they're like, what on Lips earth? Fall off. It was. And they were just like, I can't even imagine. I just can't even imagine. And they're like, and she's like, we used to do that, honey. And he's like, I know. <laughs> but isn't that just bizarre? Because now she's like, woohoo, let's go have sex. Great. So yeah. Okay, yeah. that is a really good way to look at it because I think so many of us are, we really are just approaching it from such a fear stance Yeah. of, yeah. oh my gosh, what if we break the rules? What if we do these things instead of, I have made this choice. I feel great about yeah. this choice. Oh, right. that was actually very helpful. Okay, back to you, Nick. <laughs> well, I, just a, along those same lines, I was going to say that there's this thought, in, especially in the LDS world, but a lot of people think of this uh, idea of sexual compatibility. Yes. And I think mm-hmm. that when you have a previously married person where the genie has gotten out of the bottle, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That, that that becomes an even more complicated question. So how mm-hmm. do you go about discovering your sexual compatibility before marriage? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, first of all, there, there's kind of an idea out there that if you get married, I mean, sorry, if you live together or you have, you sleep together beforehand, then you kind of know something. Mm-hmm. But there's plenty of non-LDS people who had plenty of how to say it, had a decent sexual relationship before getting married. Then once they got married and kids came along and then things really fall apart. So it's not like, I don't even know that this compatibility idea is a very helpful one, which is not me saying that everybody's the same. So what I mean by it's not that helpful is it's not, I've never met like, oh, there's two people, we're both low desire and we're such a great match. It it never goes that way. (laughs) It's because... Because it's so connected to this question of, do you love me? Do you desire me? We want those things in marriage. And sex is an expression of both. And so if sex isn't happening, if there's a low desire person, we take it very, very personally, right? Even if you don't like to have sex. I've had worked with people that don't like to have sex, right? Then their higher desire spouse starts to lose desire for them. And they're totally disoriented by that fact because they want to feel desired. That's different than I want to necessarily let you in and show up sexually. So the, I guess what I'm trying to say is the issues of intimacy and openness in marriage often don't show up until you're both committed and in that marriage. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Where one struggles to be knowable, 
how one feels about one's sexuality. That's often a product or revealed best in this, the pressures of marriage. However, I think you can tell a lot about the other person and who you are through the way you make out, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> through the way that yeah. you are. I, one of the exercises I give to the couples that I, um, when I work with couples, is I'll just say, reach over and touch your spouse. And just give them that prompt, okay? Then I basically use what happened to help them see themselves in sex. Did one reach out to the other? Did one just wait passively? Was the other, did somebody laugh or giggle? Did they make it overtly sexual and kind of like uncomfortable for the other person? Did, was it affectionate, but they made sure it wasn't sexual? Mm-hmm. Was it, was it communicating a kind of warmth and comfort that the couple understood about themselves already? Because like invariably people can see themselves in this one simple gesture. So, you know, I've sometimes talked about guys that I dated where had I married them, I wouldn't have liked sex with them. I'm, I'm quite confident because the way they would make out with me would make my desire go down. Mm-hmm. Right. It was yeah. too much. It was too invasive. It was, it's not that the passion was the problem. It's that it was the boundarylessness. I don't even mean that they were being inappropriate. I mean, it was like consuming mm-hmm. because it was driven by an anxiety in him, mm. right? Versus, you know, my husband said to me once, he's like, I'll never forget the first time that I hugged you. And I said, really? Wait, why? And he said, because it was different than any other hug I'd ever given to anybody. Hmm. And he said, you just like melted into me. Mm. And and the thing was, is that for me, I didn't go around melting on guys. <laughs> if anybody thinks I was just a, you know, <laughs> gratuitous melter. Uh, she's one of those snowmen girls, freaking melty. But John, I knew, was a kind of guy you could fully open up to and it was going to be okay. Yeah. Right? And so when I, the first time I touched him, I just, my body fully relaxed. And there was a resonance there that remained and has stayed. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't my anxieties and things that were like not clear for me, but there was a resonance that uh, of kind of freedom in being with him that was a very Im- important part of a good sexual relationship. But a lot of high desire people don't realize they are creating the anxiety in their lower desire partner because they carry critique, they carry judgment, they carry expectations. And so that's all mappable, especially at a physical level, that one doesn't see they're a part of creating low desire. You know, it makes them feel superior because, you know, she or he's broken. Right. But they may well be a part of the problem. Yeah. All right. We've got, I think, time for one more question. It's all you. All right. So this one wasn't on the list, (laughs) but it was one that I thought of this morning and I wanted to ask it. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of times that people go into a relationship asking the question, what value does this person add to my life? In what ways is this a good question to ask? And mm-hmm. in what ways is this a bad question to ask? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a good question, but you don't want to stop there. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, you don't want to let someone into your life that constrains it, that makes you, when you want to keep that space sacred on some level that anyone that you really let in treats it well. But the idea like marriage is to get something for me 
Okay. Well, most people do get married under that frame. Let's be honest. You get presents and somebody you've now just promised God they're going to love you no matter how immature you are. <laughs> so most, most people get married under that hope um, that quickly gets dashed. But really, how many of us are prepared to, am I prepared to love this person? Now, sometimes we may say yes, because then they'll love me back. Then they'll give me the life I want. I don't mean that. I mean that I really know this person. I'm willing to love them as my equal care about them, care about their insecurities, value them, speak honestly to them, right? Uh, be collaborative with them, forge a life for two of us. That's a different question. You want to choose wisely, but also you want to be a person that's capable of marriage and that's willing to really choose it. And so marriage, marriage, just like having children, just like any commitment to a significant reality is going to stretch you. That's why it's virtuous. It's, a, it's why it's a divine institution. It stretches you, but not doesn't torture you necessarily. I mean, some marriages are torturous, but those are usually unproductive marriages. It stretches you to become a better person, to grow up, to grow into somebody more capable of love. And you reap the reward of that because you have a friend, because you have someone that is grateful you're in their life. Awesome. You have your room for two podcasts. And mm -hmm. while it might be on the surface, something that is more geared towards married couples, um, mm -hmm. what might a single individual or someone that is in an unmarried situation, uh, what kind of value might they find mm -hmm. in that? Well, we should get some dating people on there. So I can't we, remember. We know some people. We know oh, a few. Yeah, we know a couple. <laughs> Any of you want to come be on the podcast, I welcome it. Meaning, <laughs> yeah. it's it, because a lot of times people are trying to work out who they are as a couple when they're dating and figuring out why they're stuck and if the place they're stuck is, is a deal breaker or not. But in general, this is about, this is a, a podcast that's about helping people understand what happens in marriage. For example, we just finished a series where the guy was always in this kind of quiet critique, but it was the whole family could feel it, including the wife. And so this is, you know, a, this helps people see themselves better. Oh my gosh, I do that, you know, or it helps the merit. I've had people write and say, you know, listening to the podcast just helps me see myself better and see how I partner better and help me know how to change it. So it's just very valuable to be wise to yourself um, in, in a, and when you're single, when you're dating, and when you're married. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming on and, and talking with us. I know that Barbie and Steve, they've been smiling the whole time, which is a good sign. Yes. <laughs> We're normally yeah. scowling. We are not happy people. <laughs> You've done a great job then. No. <laughs> We, we have new goals. I, I have goals to give melty hugs now. Yes. <laughs> I actually was thinking about that. I'm like, oh, okay. What kind of hugs do I need to give? That's a good sign. A okay. melty hug. You've made us really think. I so appreciate this. I love how much you can learn from just telling people to go touch your spouse. Find out what you... Mm -hmm. It's yeah. interesting that you can find so much from little yeah. moments. And that's, yep. that's reassuring in a way, too. That it's like, yeah, little moments matter. You can find out a yeah. lot. From those person. little things. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Yes. Thank pleasure. you for taking the time to be with us. We have absolutely loved this. And if yeah. you need singles to be on your podcast, trust me, we've got plenty. Yeah. Just let well, us know. Email me. <laughs> okay. We will. <laughs> when you finally step into the arena, yeah. bring, bring her in. Let's <laughs> <do it. laughs> there you go. We'll, we'll push. We'll give them a we'll little do. nudge. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so right, much. Thanks. Have a good day, honey. Okay. You're welcome, you guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.